You're listening to Driven by Insight. Join Willie Walker, Walker and Dunlop's chairman and CEO, as we bring you fresh perspectives about leadership, business, the economy, and commercial real estate. Willie hosts a diverse network of leaders as they share wisdom that cuts across industry lines. His guests are experts in their fields. From leading economists and CEOs to Harvard and Yale professors and everything in between. Our one goal is simple, providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. It's a real pleasure to have Barry Sterling joining me today. We had an exceptional session last week with Mary Erdos of JP Morgan. Mary's insights on the market, her candor about the gravity of the current crisis, and her personal anecdotes about working from home and managing global team during these challenging times were really fantastic. I had my weekly Children's National Hospital board call yesterday, and as we have seen since the beginning of this pandemic, the frontline doctors, nurses, and caregivers are acting in a heroic way each and every day. 70 employees at Children's National have gotten the COVID-19 virus, and 40 of them have already returned to work, and every one of those 40 has already given their plasma for plasma therapy treatments that are showing significant promise. I would add that Children's National is losing a million dollars per day right now. And like many other hospitals in the country, they're putting all their resources to fighting this pandemic and in the process, not providing other services and not making money. I would encourage anyone who can help support your local medical system during these challenging times to do so. I'd also add that Starwood has established a relief fund for hospitality workers in their hotels And I'm pleased to say that Walker and Dunlop employees have donated $7,000 to that fund to support the one hotel employees and to thank Barry for his time today. Thank you. I'm going to open with some remarks on what we are seeing at WND right now in the commercial real estate markets. And then I'm going to turn the floor over to Barry for some opening remarks and the two of us are going to dive into some Q&A. I think the daily ups and downs of the equity markets are reflective of most people's attitudes about the pandemic. Uh, One moment, the world feels like it's coming to an end. And the next, we see signs of optimism, ingenuity, and hope. My friend Josh Carper from Graystar sent me a copy of the New York Times from October 30th, 1941, last week, with a report on Winston Churchill's famous speech at Harrow School, where he said, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. And after reading Churchill's inspiring words, I read the rest of the paper from front to cover. And what struck me were a couple of things. First of all, in 1941, human beings were killing one another, not trying to save one another. Second, there was a lot of political strife in 1941, with Mayor LaGuardia of New York comparing his opponent in the mayoral race to a Nazi. Third, the labor movement in the United States was up in arms, enacting worker strikes across the country. And finally, there was plenty of financial hardship around the world due to the war, with the Italian government issuing clothing ration cards where Italians could have either a suit or a pair of shoes during the coming year, but not both. We are in tough times today, but we've been here before, and we will invariably find a way to the other side. Focusing for a moment on collections in the multifamily space, multifamily properties were a lot stronger in the month of April than we'd expected. Most of our clients that I've spoken to personally collected well over 90% of rents for the month. I had a call yesterday with a client who was at 98% collections for the month of April. The number of forbearance requests on Fannie and Freddie loans has been de minimis. Our HUD portfolio is significantly more forbearance requests, particularly on senior housing properties. 
Close to 50% of the retail properties in our portfolio have asked for forbearance and close to 70% of the hospitality properties. While Walker & Dunlop has no credit risk on the HUD retail and hospitality loans we service, we're obviously working very diligently to process those forbearance requests and help our borrowers through these challenging times. There's still a significant volume of financing going on in the multifamily space with Fannie, Freddie, and HUD all very active. We rate locked a HUD 223F deal this morning at a 269 interest rate. We also locked a $17 million 70-year Fannie Mae fixed rate deal at a 345 interest rate, and then also a $15.4 million 10-year fixed rate deal with Freddie Mac at a 344 rate. So even with the new reserve requirements that the agencies are asking for, multifamily borrowers still have access to very attractively priced capital, which is not the case whatsoever in other asset classes. There's still some significant questions on the horizon. First, what do May rent rolls look like and what percentage of loan requests ask for forbearance? If you think single-family forbearance requests mirror the unemployment rate, which who really knows, but that's something to put out there, you'd expect roughly 10% of the single-family borrowers to request forbearance. If that same framework is applied to multifamily properties, 10% of renters may ask for forbearance, which while putting downward pressure on NOI is in no way at a level where multifamily borrowers need to ask for forbearance. As we move through May, the containment of the virus, the restarting of the economy, and whether there is a needed extension of the CARES Act unemployment benefits will weigh heavily on June payments. Let me now introduce my guest, Barry Sternlich. Barry really doesn't need an introduction given his incredibly prolific and successful career in the commercial real estate industry. I'll mention a few quick points. First, Barry is without a doubt one of the most insightful investors of our time. I've spent countless hours in meetings and at conferences with Barry, and he is always good for the most insightful and at times most controversial comment in the room. Second, he and his team at Starwood have invested in every commercial real estate asset class across the globe. While many investors have had success in one asset class and one geography, Barry and his team have done it on a scale like few others. And finally, he's a friend. I'm very grateful for his time today, and with that, I'll turn the floor over to Barry. Thanks, Willie. Good afternoon, everyone. I hope you're safe and uh, doing well in your isolation, sequestration, lockdown, whatever you want to call what we're doing. I happen to be in South Florida, so I've been here for about six weeks, and I can tell you it's getting hotter every day, but fortunate not to have been in uh, New England, where, where it's been much worse than down here. I don't know where to start. I, I was listening to some of Willie's earlier comments. I think just to, on point on, on forbearance, I think like we own about 80,000 apartments and we say, I think we saw like 93, 94% collection for April. May, talking around the industry, most people are more less exuberant about that. And it does depend where you own your multis. The, the, the blue states, which are frankly at the moment led primarily by Democratic governors as well, have been more active in telling tenants not to pay landlords, which is a humanitarian thing. It sounds wonderful, but of course, we as landlords have to pay interest expense and operating expenses and real estate taxes and insurance costs. So it's not that helpful not to parallel that benevolence down to the underlying lender and asking him to forbear. In the case of Fannie and, and Freddie, at least, the multi-industry has two large players that are agreeing to do so if needed to do so. I think whether people pay in our portfolio, though, is less by coastal and more sort of like a smile through the southeast 
and then down through Florida, and those states have been better. I, I have friends who are more heavily concentrated in places like California, and California has been on the forefront of not only rent control, but also you can't evict a tenant. So I think it will depend where your portfolio is. And even though the average is also belied the fact that in some communities there are vigilante tenants organizing the place and telling everybody not to pay their landlord. So that's been more hearsay than in our actual assets. But there are levels of, <laughs> I don't know what you call it, action that are really not well thought out because we do have to maintain these properties. And just like I was just listening uh, as I walked in here to a friend who was speaking on CNBC saying that American Airlines should have gone, uh, we should let all the airlines go bankrupt because they're all owned by hedge funds. That's an idiotic statement. Uh, nothing short of idiotic because the hedge funds own probably 5 to 8% of the equity of a, of a stock. I mean, the, the real entities that own stocks today are pension plans, BlackRock, Fidelity, for individuals in your money market, in your funds, and many of us, not just millionaires and billionaires, own stocks. So it doesn't help anything to speak outright lies and blatant factual misfalls on national television and inflame an already divided nation. So let's get back to what we're seeing. And we are active in every asset class in real estate. I'm sure you all know that office tenants have, for the most part, paid their rents on 95% collection. I think we have 35 million square feet of office. I'm just checking. The only real negotiations are with the shared office tenants, whether it's WeWork or Regis or any of the smaller players. And even there, they're paying their rents site by site, depending on how profitable they are in the location. And they really can't walk out of those leases. In many cases, we have them as tenants in buildings in London, for example, and they're so far below market in their rent that if they left, we'd have a party. So they know that, so they can't stop paying us, and they'll pay us through the crisis, we expect. I'll touch on retail for one second. I mean, retail is, as you know, an interesting asset class right now, and the, and the collections have been more like 20% for us, not much higher for others. Uh, strip centers are better than malls. And there, it's all over the place. You have some nationals paying you and some nationals not paying you. And I'm not actually worried about that in the short term. I'm just hoping these tenants can reorganize and open. And I've been in, I was on a call two nights ago with David Simon from Simon Property Group, the largest mall owner in the country. And he intends to open, and he hopes people will go back to shopping. And as I said on CNBC yesterday, I don't really see much of a difference between you going to stand in line six feet apart in the supermarket and you doing, going to stand in line six feet apart in your Macy's counter. So I hope for the sake of the employment numbers in the United States, that retail industry, which is like 16 million people, will have a chance to go back to their pizza parlors and other places practicing the right social distancing, whether you have to wear a mask, temperature taking, and other kinds of protocols that will give us confidence sequentially to get out there. So stepping back also, I, I said yesterday, you're going to see a vaccine almost for sure, you know, whether it's the first quarter, second quarter, or third quarter of next year, there will be a vaccine. And they say that this strain is, it will be effective against COVID. There may be a, a new COVID, but not likely. And, and it, I think that the scientific community believes it'll be quite effective. So at that point, when we have a vaccine and people are getting the vaccine, it's widely distributed, you can assume we'd be close to back to normal if we don't screw it up on the way there. And then so what do we do between here and then will determine if we have a really permanent changes to the economy, to income, to trade, to who survives. It's one of the reasons I've been pushing with the right protocols to get the country working again. Even in my town here, where I'm in a zip code where there are more cases 
on a border zip code where there are very few cases, you can imagine that in states that are really aren't impacted, they could open up, they could watch their stats, they can see if, if cases are rising, if they're rising. I know there's a delay. This can be done with real data today in a humanitarian way because the financial suicide of the country is not really in anyone's interest. And the U.S. government does not have enough money. This fellow was also saying to Moth on TV that the $2.3 trillion the government's put out has gone to hedge funds and millionaires and billionaires, and that's absolutely another ridiculous statement. The PPA average loan out of the PPP program was like $300,000. It's going to pizza parlors. And they were actually prioritized in the program. We, as an institution, couldn't even apply for those loans until two days after the consumers could apply, even through banks like J.P. Morgan, the small businesses. So I think I have to say they did a good job. I hope the money goes where it's supposed to go, which is from the employees. But I think they've done a good job of trying to help these businesses bridge what was only allowed to be like a two, two-and-a-half-month gap. After that, that program runs out. And yesterday, approved another 200 and something $80 billion for that program. But you have to begin to worry about all the money the government's printing and whether they understand what they're doing, whether you're getting your $600 benefit added to your normal unemployment check, you get your PPP check, you got your $1,200 check in the mail to everyone making less than, I guess, 100000 bucks. Uh, maybe they're, I, I hope they're not overdoing it. I, I hope it's the right humanitarian aid, but, but isn't abused and doesn't actually have the negative impact of, of keeping people from going back to work, which would be a shame because we, we need all our hotel employees and our retail employees to go back in the stores and go help our guests as they arrive, and they will come back. So, Barry, let's jump for a second back to when did you when did you know that this was coming? In the sense of, I, I mean, did you know about it at Davos? Did you get a did you get a phone call from Bill Ackman saying, "Dude, this is going to be really bad"? When did you sort of start to focus on this as it relates to the impact of COVID on the economy on on the this year? Well, to be honest, I was talking to David Tepper, who runs Appaloosa, at the Super Bowl Super Bowl event. The Super Bowl was here in Miami this year. Yeah, that was in the early February. We were chatting, like, we think this could be really bad. And we just had a suspicion that this would be really nasty. There wasn't much other than selling all your equities you, you could have really done. I don't know. You can't sell real estate overnight. I'm not sure there's much we could have done with our holdings. And we kind of, at the Starwood Property Trust, our mortgagery, we were already slowing down investing. was fun, kind of finding harder things to do. It's harder to find things to do that you liked. So we were fortunate to enter the cycle with, some significant liquidity in a public company. But I didn't put a big short on the market, if that's the question. I don't, I don't think Blackman did either when it started. He actually did that because he couldn't sell his longs fast enough, so he bought credit default swaps and made a hell of a trade, or series of trades. As you know, that was to break even on his book. I mean, he was barely up for the... So it was a great, amazing trade with massive leverage, but no, we don't really do that. I mean, we're a long, pretty much a long-only real estate owner. And my family office... I had gone to cash, and more cash than I'd ever had as a percent of my balance sheet probably four or five months ago. You know, December was a really bad month, and I was getting nervous about the credit markets. I was particularly worried about interest rates. Like, why were interest rates falling when the equity market was rising? You know, we would have expected, you know, if you remember, the 10-year was like three and a quarter, and the next thing you knew it was like a buck and three quarters and 175. Within two months, it fell to like 75 basis points in, in January, and you're like, and the equity markets were just hanging in there, like something's wrong here. And I always say the credit guys are smarter than the equity guys, and you really have to, have to pay attention to them. And I'm actually watching the 10-year right now. It's like 60 basis points, and I'm, it's telling you this is going to be a slow recovery, 
or, and I think that's actually what it's telling you, or the weight of all the capital that's been printed. I think there have been something like 300 stimulus programs around the world. All the central banks of the Western democracies uh, have printed money. And so the world is flooded with capital and liquidity seeking yield. And that's our basic thesis of why we feel real estate will remain super attractive coming out of the cycle because we ultimately, multifamily included, produce a yield, which will be hard to find in the world today. So in the world post-COVID. Sadly, we're going to look a lot like Japan. They have something like 285% debt to GDP. We're probably passing 120% debt to GDP on our way higher. Maybe I haven't kept up because the, the, the programs are so rapid. I, the last program until yesterday, before yesterday, they had, they had printed 13% of GDP. So and we've, we, this, even the equity markets look, not, well, this is a whole new ballgame. It's interesting. I'll tell you one fun thing. Somebody asked me to do a phone call yesterday with Charlie Munger, who is Warren Buffett's partner. And Charlie Munger is 96 years old. And he did this from his chair in his home somewhere in California in a, in a modest house, just like Warren Buffett, uh, I'm told, has. And uh, you don't get a chance to talk to somebody who lived through the Great Depression. Right. <laughs> so he was supposed to be asking me questions. I was asking him all these questions. And and Charlie said, look, this isn't the Great Depression. You know, it's, it's not going to be like that because the government is here, you know, putting money into people's pockets. The government didn't do that back then. They didn't ease and uh, not like this. And they, though unemployment reached 30 percent, he said there were no prospects of finding jobs. We actually know where this all these jobs came from in the last six weeks. Right. They came from retail. They came from hospitality. They came from tourism and leisure. They came from the airlines. They didn't come from Netflix and, and Apple and Google. So they didn't come from Star Capital Group. We haven't laid off a person, a parent. So we know how to put them back to work. We have we know what industries have to be revived to get these people jobs again. And, and they are not industries that are going the way of the dodo bird. I mean, people will travel and they will go to hotels again and they will visit their families and go to graduations and concerts and parties. And I've said from the start, this is a this is a very bad flu. And you can actually look around the world now and see the flu passing through municipalities. And whether you want this country to stay closed or to open, you're going to have a chance to see the test kits of all of these countries are doing different things. Germany's opening. Georgia's opening. Northern Florida is more open than southern Florida, which is appropriate given the spread of the disease or the contagion. Northern New York is different than uh, Manhattan. So we don't need to follow one size fits all. And uh, we can narrow scape our, our processes. And I think, again, the people will travel. So they'll take these cases like I think they say 30 cases have been imported into China by foreigners. It's not the end of the world. We all get the flu. Right? And not everyone dies. So if you believe, as I do, that many more people have seen this disease or are asymptomatic to it, the denominator is marginally greater than the flu. It's a tragic disease. Iris people stay indoors. My mom stays indoors. I hope she does. So understanding <laughs> that we, you know, we're learning new stuff every single day, and, you know, you just had your conversation yesterday with Charlie as it relates to the severity of this and getting out of it. Back in March... You said that you thought it would be sort of like a three-month World War III and that the recovery would be sort of V-shaped. Are you still in the sort of that time frame and in the V-shaped recovery, or are you looking more you or Nike swoosh? If I thought we'd go in and out, I was really being more optimistic than I probably am. I think the slope, like I said, how do we get out? It will depend on how quickly we can get back to work, how standardized the processes are for different 
protocols. So if you come into my hotel and I temper check you and I've got a mark on the door that I've sprayed my hotel, kept it clean, sanitized every handle, do it all the time. I think people go back to traveling. They need to do it everywhere. So once you standardize these protocols and people have faith in them, they'll have confidence, they'll travel. Until then, the slope is damaged. And uh, it'll take a while before we travel internationally the way we traveled pre-COVID. And, you know, it's so interesting. I'm sure, like everyone listening, you have your optimistic friends and your the world is ending. It'll never be the same friends. I choose to be more optimistic and not. You know, I listened to uh, a fellow yesterday say that we'll, we won't go back to the office. We like working remotely. I don't like working remotely. Like, I like being in an office and seeing people and talking to them and asking how they're doing. So, yeah, some people like working from home, but you can always work from home. And I don't think it's going to damage long-term demand for office. If anything, you'll see people move apart in the office so you could have just as much space leased or twice as much space leased. You want the same number of people because you need more space for your people. So the era of people piling on top of each other in three-foot-wide cubes, that's over for a while. Yeah. If you have that, that arrangement, you're going to leave half of your people at home and bring them in every other day so you could space them appropriately. So I don't really worry. And, I, and I, another thing about the U.S., the nation, we are short-term focused nation. We are, you call it shallow, I just call it optimistic. Like, we, we live for the next week's football game or who's, who, what the next Netflix series or the next Oscar season or parties or or. We're not, we don't really carry a lot of, we're not like Europeans. They remember the war. We didn't have a war. Like they know what their parents did in the war and who died. We don't remember anything like that. It's actually, it's a nice thing about the country. It forges innovation and, and makes us sort of look to the future as a nation. I think, I think part of the blame for this, of course, is politics. You know, the, it's sadly the case, I think, and, and I could argue with me and people get upset about what I'm going to say, but. Some of the Democrats, and I'm agnostic, I, I consider myself a, an independent, frankly. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm not making a political statement, I'm going to make an observation that it is, seems to be that the Democratic, Democrats and Democratic leadership does not want to open the country. You can say they're being humanitarian. You go say they want the country to stay in recession because Trump's chances of winning in a recession are negligible. And so if it's really compassion and benevolence and they really care about everybody, that's one thing. If it's some master plan to keep the economy closed so the, the country can't go anywhere and they can ride on desperation to Democrats will flood the zone with gifts for people, that would be sad because that, that would really be really bad for the country. The country should open if it can, where it can, in a smart way and learn the lesson. We're all watching Sweden, right? Sweden didn't close. Right. You hear everything under the sun about that experiment, but at the moment, they're plowing forward, and I'm watching it very closely. And as you know, we both get all kinds of inbound stories, male scientists on every side of this. Drugs work, they don't work, but never has the world's medical establishment been so focused on finding a cure for a single thing. And I'm optimistic with all the technology available to them today that they will find something. If they do that, my slow recovery could be much faster, I think. If you knew you could open and you had a pill that would cure you from the COVID virus, you would probably, I would, I would just go back to work. I would get on a plane, even commercially, and go anywhere you want me to go. I'll go. So take your thinking on office and take it to retail for a second, because you obviously own a bunch of retail. From what we have seen, grocery anchored retail has been hanging in there, obviously, because they've got the, you know, the big box grocery stores or a Target 
in them. The the malls are all sort of dead and vacant right now. Does that asset class come back, Barry, or is that does that go by the dodo bird? It's going to go more to the owner. So if the owner has the deep pockets and has or investors who have deep pockets and commitment, it's going to take a lot of money to replace the tenants that don't make it. And a lot of these companies, you don't have to listen to me, just go to the go to the stock market and see Macy's with a $5 stock price, pennies, I think 40 cents. Both companies' bonds are trading at like 24% yields to maturity, and the other one was 40 last I looked. The market doesn't think the anchors are going to make it. And there are lots of uses for those anchors. Typically, though, a lot of mall owners don't know that those, those anchors are owned by Macy's, they're owned by Serotage, which is Sears real estate arm. And so for the mall owner, you have to actually figure out how to get that anchor to get somebody like Burlington Code Factory, like a biotech lab, like an office tenant, like into that space, reconfigure it, cut holes in the, in the walls so they have windows. It's super expensive. The one thing the mall has going for it is everyone knows where it is. It's usually got more than excessive ample parking, great signage, great access. That's why they chose the land for the mall. And will there be enough tenants for these malls, like solvent tenants? We'll see. I mean, that will, again, go to the length of the recovery. If you get these companies' funds, you know, they will stay open. Shake Shack's in a lot of malls, they'll be okay. Sephora, they're okay. They're owned by LVMH. But some of the, the companies you see today that the sale of Victoria's Secret didn't go through. And that stock is down around 30%. That's L Brands. You know, those, those are typically mall tenants. And the mall owner has nothing to do with this, right? This is not his issue. This is how do these companies survive? Do they have a big enough online presence to weather the storm? And where will they choose to spend their precious dollars? For, for retailers that were in trouble before the crisis, they had three choices of where to spend their money. They could expand, open new stores. Uh, they could renovate their existing stores. They could improve their product lines. They could buy back stock, <laughs> or they could build their online presence. And I think you would guess 70 80% of them went online because that's what Wall Street wanted them to do, even though in many cases the margins online were not better than in the store. But I think there'll be physical retail. I think the number of names is going to be smaller. And I think the tenants, the, the malls will be radically retenanted, which can only happen if the existing owner has the money to put up the tenant improvements or change the mall. You know, we, we have a, a loan on a, the American Dream Mall, which is not yet fully open next to the uh, Meadowlands in yeah. New Jersey. In New Jersey, and that's really an amusement park. I wouldn't even call it a mall. And we underwrote it as an amusement park. (laughs) It has Ferris wheels, and it has, like, you know, ski indoor ski slopes and all kinds of – there's a Legoland inside. So it's kind of like Six Flags in in New Jersey with a bunch of stores around it. And, and, you know, one part of retail, which will probably do very well, but has been a very important component of many company sales, is, is travel retail being uh, the, the stores at the airports, which were doing fantastically well and obviously not doing so well right now. That's a very good business for many, many names and consumers spending and, and, and is not not good right now. So, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I, I must get a thousand emails a day. I have to figure out how not to get them from you know, all these guys I've got online and bought a pair of socks from. And, <laughs> and, and you know, one thing about retail also, there were a number of companies, Warby Parker, Bonobos, Allbirds, to some extent, uh, Casper, 
that were actually started online and were moving very aggressively into physical retail and finding that the two of them together improved their sales dramatically. And I think Warby was up to, last I checked, like over 100 stores on the way to 300, and I guess it's probably 130. Companies like Sweet Green. These are the tenants that have to find their way into the mall. The mall has a lot of tenants that sadly are not relevant to today's consumer. The mall used to be a, a home of a happy little teenage girl who went after school, and now it's, it's more, more to older, older folk. But to the extent you get a tenant in there that people, the, the kids like, they have a little thing called Pandora, which is like little jewelry you put on. You collect the, the charms and put them on your ring. I mean, there's a huge hit in the mall. So um, that was a very successful store, even, you know, with the names in the mall that were no longer that relevant. So it's a call to action for, it's interesting. I'll, I'll, I'll just, I'm going to relate it to hotel business for a second. We started One Hotels. One Hotels is a luxury green brand we have three or four open and we have 15 or 20 in the pipeline. You have a brand that means something to consumers. We're, we're a green brand. We're a luxury green experience. And so despite the amazing push of Airbnb, we run our hotels nearly full and have had even in, in, with significant increase in construction of hotels in Manhattan every year for the last four years, we've been able to raise our rates and, and improve our profit, our profitability because we mean something. The brand means something. So we, it's not just a commodity. Many of the tenants in the mall, some of the brands like The Gap and so sometimes Abercrombie or The Limited, they didn't really have a brand DNA. Whereas the, the brands that were born online, like Warby Parker and Allbirds, they, they're kind of fun. You know what they stand for, and everything is tight around a brand image. To survive in this world coming forward, you have to stand for something. You have to be affiliated with something, an emotional content that gives you pricing power. People want to be part of their experience. And buying your brand physically or online says something about them. So whether you're, you're, you're buying Rihanna's lipstick or you're buying one of those girls, the um, Kardashians. I mean, people, there's a shop in New York, it was in Soho that I, I'd never heard of, Supreme. And I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was a home shelter. signs down on the block to buy these. I mean, it's a physical store. And, there is a hundred people online to buy some $800 pair of sneakers. And I, I, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> so when you have a relevant product, there's demand. It's just, I think some management teams have been slow to action to define their brands, to get pricing power, create an experience in the store. The whole industry is going to go through a massive overhaul. There will be, there will be retail at the end. It, it, it's, and many of these stores will find another, another alternative uses. When you just your story about Supreme reminds me of when you and I were over at the one in Miami. I don't know whether it was last year or the year before, and you mentioned to me I was talking about advertising with you and why there was branding in hotels and not branding in apartment buildings. And one of the things you said about the one was just that Leonardo DiCaprio coming into the one and tweeting out that he'd stayed there was worth every paid advertisement you'd ever invested in at the one hotels. And it's just interesting how much of a tie-in there is to social media and all that. Let me just for a second on hotels, Perry. On high-end versus the sort of choice hotels, you know, if you look at occupancy, the choice hotels right now actually have surprisingly high occupancy levels across the country where there is this part of the economy that has to keep moving forward. And extended stay hotels, which you own as well, have held up pretty well during this downturn, whereas the higher price point properties are shut. Talk for a moment about how you see those two different sort of markets in hospitality coming back. And when you see the higher end, you know, most of the people on this call travel for work. We all, you know, hop on airplanes, travel around the country. When, from your expectation, can you see a 
not at, as a REVPAR basis on, on your one, but just an occupancy level of 60 or 70 percent at the one? I think, you know, our thoughts are we'll get back to 2019 occupancy levels sometime in the back half of 2021. Is that next year? Again, when will they open? Will the NFL open? Will the NBA open? Do you think they do? Do you think the NFL has a season? Yes, I do. I'm involved with the soccer team in Europe, and they're going to—they're planning on starting the season with or without fans in the in the seats. I think I think the country wants to get back to normal. So I think whether there are people in the seats or they social distance in the seats, uh, I don't know if you saw there was a there was a rally or a protest. I can't tell which one it was over the new Israeli prime prime minister. They formed a new government, and people were standing like six feet apart. <laughs> this is a huge rally. So maybe we'll be sitting every three seats apart. It'll be a very nice experience at the at the games, but or they'll pipe in uh, sound the roaring crowds. But I think we want original content back. But it goes to travel. That's why I raised it because if there if there's a season, people travel. If there's uh, so, what will open first? The roadside hotels will come back faster. You didn't have to get on a plane, and you know there may be a an infrastructure bill that will help these hotels even further as construction people move around. Transport, you're still shipping stuff by truck and by rail, even today, to, to keep uh, products in the supermarkets. And I think, I think you're going to see that first. Then it stays really a kind of apartment building. So our chain of lower-end hotels has 24,000 keys, and in our the assets, we were, we were already renovating a bunch of them. And the non-renovated ones are the ones that are not being renovated right now. They're running almost 80%, which is shocking. I was hoping this was going to happen, but I wasn't sure it would happen. And as you move up the chain, you get fewer and fewer occupancy when you get to Vegas and big hotel, any hotel really in New York. We tried to keep our one hotel in Manhattan open. We offered it to the medical community, too, and there was no interest. There was no demand. You read about the Four Seasons giving the hotel to doctors in New York. There were no takers. So people would just like to exhaust it. They went home. So we closed the hotels everywhere, and group hotels will open later. And I, I think uh, I was asked about liability. It's become a big issue that people are saying, well, if we open our businesses, what happens if somebody gets COVID? Can they, will they sue me or they come to my hotel? Will they sue me because they got COVID in my hotel? I think we're going to have to come up with some kind of liability. We could, they're asking Congress to come up with some kind of global protection scheme. What I, what I think would work just as well and be a lot cheaper is if we just had people sign I understand I'm staying in your hotel. Uh, you tell me you've done this and this, and I'm, I understand that I could come up with COVID, and I won't sue you if I have it. You might need that on airlines, on cruise ships, in stores. I don't know, but maybe if you know, given our propensity to litigate, I would find that a shame if, if in an effort to open the country, people use this as an excuse to have class action lawsuits of people who are getting sick. And by the way, with 14-day gestation, we don't even know where they got sick. How do they know they got sick in my hotel? They could have gotten sick coming to my hotel. So I don't know. I mean, if you look at the, the deaths, which are awful, and you look at the number of cases, which is shocking, the H1B1N1, whatever that virus was in 2009, was really bad. This isn't much worse than that. So they did not shut the nation when a million and a half people died around the world in that, with that virus. So and you're on for yeah. a year and a half. So you're talking about opening up, and you're on the President's Commission Restarting America. I want to know, what's it like to be on a conference call with the President of the United States and 100 of the, 100 of the most influential CEOs in the world, and uh, does anyone say anything other than the President? <laughs> uh, there's press on here. <laughs> um, uh, Donald's President, I knew Donald Trump 
fairly well. Spent many a golf game with him before he went into the into the office. And he sounds pretty much on that call like he sounds on on the press conferences that you see these days. He says we're getting the tests. We're going to have. We're doing well. We're doing better than anyone else. And but it was it was an honor to be selected for the committee. I got a call from Steve Mnuchin, who I knew prior to him being named Treasury Secretary, and he asked me if I'd do it. I said, yes, I haven't done any of these commissions before. This is really to help the country as much as it is something really to do with the presidents for the United States and, and the nation's benefit. There were questions and statements, and I would say there were more statements from CEOs than there were questions. But most people were talking about testing, and if, if you know a lot about testing, we, we're not even sure if you test and you're you, if you don't have it, you could have it in a week's time. And some of there are false positives, and there's also, there might be a second wave. That's why I think we just have to get on with it. And we can test. I'd love to test the antibody. You'd like to say, but if you haven't had the disease, you appear not to have the antibody. So everyone in my house, six of us were tested, and we, we don't have, thank God we haven't had COVID, but we also don't have the antibody. So I'm not sure how we feel about it. We're all kind of hoping we had the antibody so we could be immune. But We'll see. I, I think I think with Trump and, and that call, it was exactly an hour. There were many of the statements they knew executives knew they were going to be called on. Jeff Bezos, the CEO of MasterCard, Brian Moynihan from Bank of America. You've seen them before talking with President Trump and the administration. And I will give them credit that they set up the commission and there has been a little bit of follow up, too. That, um, but we haven't had a second call. And uh, some of us have reached out to the administration on different things that we think they should be doing to help the capital markets. And uh, I'd say with not much success at the moment, the country did different things in 07, 08 to help the capital markets get back on their feet. You mentioned that the spreads for multis aren't terrible right now, but the spreads for office and for hotels and for everything else are are god-awful, partly because commercial mortgage-backed securities, which were floated by uh, to finance hotels and retail and everything else are not getting done and they're trading existing securities are trading really widely. So during TALF, during 2008, they accepted some of these securities. Even if they just took the rated private label securities into this TALF program, it would stabilize the market. It would bring spreads down and people wouldn't be taking ridiculous losses on, on paper. That's very likely to be money good in, in any scenario that the nation does open. Now, again, if they keep this country closed for nine months to a year, all bets are off. It's going to be a, a we're going to have the Great Depression. If that happens, you'll see social unrest. It will be a terrible, terrible thing for the country, in my opinion. Do you think there's any chance that we come out and then have to go back in? I mean, I think that that's one of the things. I mean, we're, we're obviously headed towards opening back up right now and on a state-by-state basis. You know, clearly... There are plenty of the talking heads that will say to you, careful, we've got, you know, the, the, the flu of 19, the pandemic of 1918 was a W where it came in the spring, then came back in the fall, and then came the next year. I, I heard you clearly say, look, we have technology, we know where jobs are, there are a lot of things that are different, and so I get that. But I guess one of the concerns that a lot of people have thought about, Barry, is you start to open back up, and then all of a sudden we all got to run back inside, and that, that's going to lose any kind of confidence. Is there anything there that you are either hearing or seeing that says to you, you know, we're going to be able to manage this? Don't know. Could happen. Don't have a choice. That's how I look at it. And I think, I mean, in 1918, pretty sure you didn't have an iPhone. Pretty sure you couldn't communicate instantly with hospitals in Moscow and China and Israel and, and England and get best practices from around the world. It was impossible to communicate around the Spanish flu like you can communicate around COVID 
from the whole planet Earth with, I don't know, maybe six billion people on Earth. So I don't think we have a choice. I think we can isolate it if, it if it comes out. And I hope we don't have to shut the whole country again. You know, again, if you believe there's a vaccine and you believe that remdesivir, I can't even say it, it will work, or yeah, remdesivir, then you can do this. And so far, you know, the leaked studies show it's effective. I don't know, but I, I think the, the inverse, the suicide of the nation's system, it's not me being cold, okay? I get all that my son is angry at me because you can't open the country. What's wrong with you? I'm saying you don't understand financial suicide. You don't understand despair of a pizza parlor and a family that, that can't open a pizza parlor and they're, they're going broke and you're destroying their life savings, which they invested in their, in their pizza parlor or their barbershop or their hair salon. So and those are the businesses that, that power the country. And Trump's program has not really gone to big business. I don't know where this – I know Chamath Falataya from Social Capital, and that was just garbage. I mean, that, that is not true. It is not benefiting. I, I got a loan on one of our hotels, you know, and 75% of the money goes to the employees. And we got, I think the largest loan we got was $2 million. Bucks, and 75% is going right out the door, right to the employees that make less than 100000 bucks. And I'm delighted to have the ability to help them. We were doing it already. Like, we were giving them health benefits. We raised a million and a half dollars ourselves to help our, our employees that are in need and internally with people like you, Willie. And that's been great, but, you know, that's really going to be June because if they, it took them to April when they, they weren't helped. And, I, I, again, there are going to be different protocols, best practices by industry, and this country can look to other countries for best practices on reopening, whether it's Sweden's experience, what Germany's doing today, or France or even Italy, where, you know, you hear about Italy and, and the age of the population, the propensity to smoke is 10 points higher. We have 13% of adults smoke here. 26%, I think it is, of Italians smoke. Men's is older than us. They have a bad health care system. Everyone, everyone who died had not even one but two pre-existing conditions. So our high-at-risk people have to stay inside and be careful. The elderly population has to be super careful, and we should come up with ways to help them, visit them with masks. And I sat with my mom in her backyard and you know, brought her groceries and a sandwich, and we had, and she still calls me, and we talk all the time. So she's running out of books to read, but she's okay. I have to get her onto Netflix. She doesn't know how to do that yet. <laughs> so you spent, you know, your entire career being, if you will, I want to say counter-cyclical, but back from when you started buying assets during the RTC and then buying hotels back in the 1990s when nobody really wanted to buy hotels to continue to expand Starwood through the dot-com bust and then through 9-11 into buying a portfolio of loans from Chorus Bank when they were going bust. I mean, a lot of people right now are starting to sit there and say, okay, if this starts to get back going, when do I start to put money to work? And you are as insightful as anybody on sort of how to put money to work and not catch a falling knife. Yes. As you sit here today and you say, all right, this thing's going to start to crank back up. When are you saying, all right, team, let's go. We're going to start putting capital to work. We're going to start investing. What are the things you're looking for to give you the confidence that you've got enough information to make investments and you're not making foolish ones? We're buying now. We're on offense in our private equity funds. We're buying some things. We've bought more debt because we don't have to travel anywhere to buy a piece of paper. We understand the companies. I did travel to go look at a hotel this week, and I would like to have bought the company. It appears to have gotten their PPP influx and decided they don't want to sell the hotel. And I'm not sure why that is, but we'll find out. 
or we'll move on to something else. We're looking, we're looking at a bunch of stuff today. We're, we're quite busy, actually. But, again, you can't really finance much. And if you're going to finance today's spreads, the sellers aren't taking prices that reflect the cost of debt today. So the, the transaction market worldwide for assets has sort of gone into a temporary coma. I think when we get back, we are able to get back on an airplane and look at properties and, and see uh, the assets we might be buying. It'll be easier to do equity transactions. But you know, a lot of our focus has been on the public markets. We raised a special situations fund to go into the public markets and take stakes in companies at prices we thought we might never see again in our lifetime. And as you pointed out, Chorus Bank was an interesting trade. We bought that was one of the few major trades out of the government in the 07-08 crisis. And it's very hard to be a contrarian, even in my own firm. Uh, there are people who think the world's going to totally end, and they think I'm insane. So that's why you get the opportunity to make these bets. But they're all, you know, if it was if everybody knew we were coming out of this the stocks and bonds would be trading car. So historically, the nation has come out of these great falls. And historically, we've underestimated the strength of the rallies. And in Chorus Bank, you may recall, we were condemned and criticized for, I think we outbid our nearest bidder by $500 million on a $2.7 billion deal. That was the related companies. They, they actually were vocal in saying we were crazy. We made almost a billion four on that trade. 60% of it, by the way, went to the government. They were our partner. And had we held it another year, we could have easily made another billion dollars. We sold too early. But my view is when you're buying real estate assets well below the cost of replacement in a country like the United States with land, in some cases, almost at no, no value, you're going to make money because this nation is going to grow. We add three or four million people a year organic growth. And we will eventually open up what I'd call smart immigration because the country needs the, the workers. And that will help the country grow. And, and without immigration, you can't get the GDP numbers that the Trump administration would like to see in the economy. With this country needs a million, million and a half immigrants. Screen them, make sure they're not villains, whatever you want to do. But we need immigration to grow this economy, and we should be having immigration. So taking that away was one of the key issues in the, in the tepid growth it should have been even better under in, with the Trump administration, but and not fixing this fact that we educate foreign students and we won't let them stay here, so they go home and compete with us, is one of the most idiotic things polit the political class has ever come up with. And how they can't like, and my son, uh, one of my sons is going to go to Harvard Business School. Thir a third of the class will be foreign, and they're not allowed to stay here. So I train them to compete with U.S. industries. I mean, how ridiculous is that? So they want to stay here, and we can't keep them. So they go back home, and they compete with us. Really great program. The idiocy of some of the political classes beyond comprehension. And you're not talking about 100 million people, right? You're talking about educated people, the people we'd want to have stay here. So that's for the record, by the way. So I know there's press on here. And, I mean, that's we can't even get our own people back. You know, we send them to England, and we can't get them back here. Like, how ridiculous is this? We have to apply for a lottery to get educated, highly intelligent, people want to live here and contribute to American society and they're not allowed to? Come on. That was ridiculous. So You entered the, uh, the energy business by buying uh, something pretty significant from GE, I guess, year before last it was. What's your take on the energy markets and what's your take on basically <laughs> zero oil? Well, this is an anomaly, zero oil. And our energy business is sort of more in electricity generation, and that has been pretty stable right now arguably benefits from, from low oil prices. 
But the energy market will stabilize. It's going to be a big, rocky road. I don't know where energy oil prices will come back. Obviously, uh, the producers, including American producers, have to stop producing oil. And that was just a futures trade mess that happened on, I guess, two, day, two days ago, where there's, there's not storage for the oil that's coming over here. If you read Saturday's journal, there were 20 Saudi supertankers on the seas going to deliver 40 million barrels of oil to ports that don't can't take it. So if you want to drop that oil off, we're saying you have to pay us to take your oil, which is what you saw. That 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 contract corrected yesterday, and it, when it expired, and it was like $9 for a barrel of oil yesterday, it closed. And this morning, June oil, I think, is 11 bucks. Until we cut, the, the oil markets are like, they work, they're like a scale. Like, I think last I saw, the world needed like 100 million barrels of oil a day. Maybe it's 103 or 108. I don't really know exactly. If you produce 112, 115, 120, the whole price of oil crashes. If you produce 90 or 91, oil prices rise. Because of the pandemic, I mean, global demand has crashed, and global supply did not crash, and, and they announced a 10% cut or whatever that was, uh, 20 million barrels. Nobody believes it's going to happen. <laughs> They've never been able to hold the cartel together. A lot of the bad actors in the world need oil because to fund their regimes like Iran some extent Russia. So it's very difficult for them to comply because it's really the only source of revenue for their economies. And so they cheat. And so you have all this oil on the market. Again, when the economy gets going again, when planes are flying and cars are driving and people are traveling, you will suck up a lot of this oil. But in the meantime, it's going to be a rocky road. I actually looked at a contango trade yesterday. I was thinking of getting a ship and getting oil at $2 and parking it offshore and then bring it back when oil is 30 bucks a barrel. Oil will be managed higher. So it won't stay here. It's just through this crisis and the fact that nobody knows how long there'll be zero demand. If they don't cut production, we're going to see massive bankruptcies of, of shale producers and other marginal players in the United States in the Marcellus and, and parts of Texas. And it's kind of a kind of a shame. I, I can't say, you know, gas prices have held steady around 175. That's not great. But they haven't fallen anywhere near what's happened to gasoline because we need gas for electricity production and, and other uses. So it's really the fact that the commodity has no ability to be stored when produced in these amounts. Our energy business has been solid, although the REIT kind of went on defense. The, this is Star Property Trust. We, we really were, were going on defense, making sure we could survive this crisis. It wasn't really our loans or our borrowers. It was really the behavior of the banks with the banks how much collateral would they ask us to post as they arbitrarily, I would argue, mark down a value of a loan? You know, people get confused. Like the mortgage REITs, which have taken it on the chin, most of them were lending 65 70% of value. They weren't lending like these 07, 08, 90%, 95%, 100% of value. And then the banks were advancing against those positions if they didn't have secure corporate debt, which we have, or CLOs, which we have. If they had just lines from the banks, the banks were lending 70 against 70. Well, that's 50, 49%, right? So the banks at 49% of prior COVID value. If the property dropped 10% in value, did they really have to margin call you? And, and yet there was a collective, if I don't do it, then the other bank will do it. And I really don't want to do it, but I got to do it. That's all past. I think at the moment, the whole credit world looks fairly stable. It's actually rallied as the government added AAA CMBS to their bucket of stuff they'll buy with their TALF program, but single CMBS, the generic assets like triple B, double B, 
they've been wobbling and they've gotten some strength, but they're not trading where they were pre-crisis. And if the government took at least all the investment grade classes, double A's, single A's, triple B's, I think everything would tighten and, and they'd probably be facing no losses at all. So that's what we'd like to see them do. Although I think Summary Property Trust is pretty solid. We'll get through it. So, so two final questions. Um, one, what's it cost to rent a tanker to put offshore and hold on to all the oil? <laughs> what's a tanker cost to lease for a month? I had- it doesn't work right now, as I found out. I had I found ships. I found five ships, and I, I'm an investor in a commodities trading platform when they do exactly this. And the guy who had the ships, most of them have been leased. People have done this trade. The rental prices he was are too high given they were too high. So the trade doesn't really work. I mean, the equivalent of like $35 for a year. If you want to store it for a year, it's $35 a barrel. So it's like, okay, I'm not really going to say that oil is going to get to 50 bucks a barrel, which I buy at 11 today and store it for 35. I have to get 46 to break even. So he doesn't lose. He, he wins in every case. Those ships probably rented for $3 a barrel before oil went to zero. So it's a perfect world. Willing. <laughs> so, so final question, which is that you've been very generous to your alma mater, Brown University, and gave a, a health and wellness center at, at Brown. What are you doing to maintain health and wellness during these uh, challenging times? Know that? We did that anonymously. How did you know that? <laughs> anyway, I work out every morning, <laughs> like you. I try to keep in shape. keeps my mind clear. It's my time out. I don't meditate, although my daughter would like me to do that. So I'm going to try to do that, but Spending an hour in the gym is my alone time. And I'm biking, running, bathing. <laughs> I'm in Miami. We actually, they open the water so we can go paddle boarding and, and other things as long as we stay six feet apart. <laughs> so, no, I, I try to stay in shape. I played tennis today, actually. So I haven't done that since recently, but that's a good run. And uh, it, it actually, I have to do that. I can't, uh, I get tired when I don't exercise. So I'm sure you're the same way. Agree on that. I hear you on that. Well, with that, we're right at the bottom of the hour. So, Barry, I want to thank you very much for spending this hour with us. Thanks for your insights. Thanks for your friendship. And stay safe and healthy during these challenging times. And I'll see you sometime soon. Thanks, Willie. Thanks for doing it. Be safe. Thanks. See you. Stay safe. Bye.